If I were in my perfect dream world to decide what I was going to inherit, I don't know, it would be it would be a grand piano. This is my mom. But you don't choose your family either. So so in our family, our inheritance is Alice. Alice, I guess the most important aspect is she's a doll. She's also an inherited member of our family. For the past five generations, Alice has been passed down from mother to daughter on the daughter's 12th birthday. That means when I turned 12, I got Alice from my mom, and my mom got Alice on her 12th birthday from... Hello, Rosie. That lady, my grandma. (laughs) And so on, all the way back to my great-great-grandmother, Edith. As far as inherited objects go, Alice is pretty unique. She's, She's a very large doll. She's about the size of a two-year-old, at least that's what my mother told me. It's even scary, like, picking her up, right? because she's heavy. And that's what makes her so special. (laughs) You can't really move her. The most you can do is sort of take off one dress and put on another dress. She's beautiful. She's classic. Has these bright blue eyes, and... And she's always been a blonde. She has long, curly, blonde hair in ringlets. I did find out at some point that she has real human hair. So Alice's hair came from France. (laughs) She's also delicate. Being that the head is made out of, you know, uh, not china, but uh, porcelain. I don't cry much over lost things, but I think I would be very upset if something happened to her. For my mom and for myself, Taking care of Alice means taking care of a part of my grandmother, and her mother, and her mother before her. When I look at Alice, I think about the experiences and the love that she represents from the people that came before, all the, all the women that came before, who had babies of their own and loved their babies, and then they give this baby doll to their baby. <laughs> You're listening to State of the Human, the radio show of the Stanford Storytelling Project. I'm Rosie LaPuma. Each week, we pick a common human experience, like teaching or belonging, and bring you stories that explore and deepen that experience. Today, we're talking about inheritance. Of course, we inherit much more than just heirlooms or money. Something I've inherited? Curls of my father's hair. A locket from my grandmother. Like, you know, like bracelets here, a necklace here. It would be my eye my, shape. My knowledge of the language of French. The history of my a, family. A uh, tie tack from uh, an uncle. Um, my eyes from my mother. I have inherited my sense of humor. Today we're asking, what do we make of that inherited gene, that foreign language, that tie tack from your beloved uncle? How do we shape our inheritance? And how does it shape us? In the next hour, you'll hear... The forgotten tales of hand-me-down clothing. Stories of family exploits that keep our ancestors alive. How your genetic inheritance can define you, for better and for worse. And how even our values can get passed down from one generation to the next. First up, we'll meet an artist who studies fabricated inheritance. What does it feel like to receive something personal from a stranger? There's a great big wall with these uh, 
cardstock tags pinned all over it. And right in front of it, there's this modest little clothing rack. There's some clothes on a hanger, and they've all got stories along with them. And just like the ones on the wall, each item of clothing has its own tag with a handwritten note. This one's so sweet. It's a sweater that's at least 20 years old. And since it was my mom's, it means a lot to me, and I hope it means a lot to you too. It's just so cute. Just above the tags on the wall, written in big black letters, it reads, The Stories We Wear. My name is Brooke McGever. I am currently doing a project called The Stories We Wear. Brooke is an MFA student in the design program. Basically, this project works like a free store. Each garment has a tag. The person who gives the clothing fills out the first part of the tag that says, share a story and or a hope that you would like to pass along with the item. Oh my god, look at this moo moo. Oh my god. God, the moo moo. This is a lovely, I don't know, bright moo moo. It, um, it kind of looks like a grandmother's pajamas. It says, got at a clothing swap but never worn. A friend, I could see why you'd never wear it. If you can pull this off, God bless you. <laughs> yeah, it needs a special person to be able to pull that off. Um, this is hilarious. Yeah, not all of them are winners. On the bottom of the tag, it says, why did you pick this and what are your hopes for it? And then the receiver, the person who takes the clothes, fills out that. So it becomes a, a dialogue. And then those tags are then posted on the wall. So, um, and now we have over 100, which is really exciting. What's cool about this project is that it sets up a situation where people actually get to choose their inheritance. You know, in the past, things were really special and your mom made them or your, or your grandma made them and they were passed down. Can we have that feeling still with strangers? And can that extend beyond inheritance or beyond family or beyond someone you know. And so this is kind of looking at inheritance in, in the view of choice. Maybe you, you can choose how you want to continue this product or garment story. I was really curious that if you attach a meaning or if you attach a story to the clothes, does that affect uh, what, whether people take them or not? And will people appreciate them even more? So it's kind of that you, you can choose what you want to inherit. And I think that's kind of a new way to look at it, which is really interesting. Do people really value where their clothing comes from? You know, is there something different about knowing a story behind the clothing that makes people engage with their clothes in a way that's just different from flipping through a sale rack at Urban Outfitters? People really wanted to read the stories, wanted to know who they were from, and we noticed that when people were writing the notes, they were excited to have the opportunity to attach a meaning to a piece of clothes. Um, and at that moment, I, I thought maybe we had tapped into something that I wanted to dive into further. So looking at this as a kind of inheritance that people were choosing, I wanted to know what kind of stories people wanted to pass on in the first place. There was also a big theme of love. I mean, I think that goes down to the basics of humankind. When you strip away everything and all of the things that we want are gone out the window, you really are focusing on what you need. And those are two things that you really need to get through in, in life is love and strength. Um, so I donated a shirt that I used to wear at my office job a lot. Um, and I put this note on it. I said, I formed a great friendship in the dressing room of the loft, which is the store where I had gotten the shirt. Um, a coworker took me on as a personal project after hearing stories of my sexist boss. She proceeded to find me a cool new job. So it was kind of fun to like pass this shirt on with a story that was like really, it held a personal significance to me. Um, and then I was really excited when I came and I read this story from the person that picked it up. 
So whoever took that shirt ended up writing a reply. And the person said, um, I like that this shirt was a product of what I assume to be a female friendship, with one woman empowering another. As a senior, I could use some girl power in business casual attire for job interviews. But some shirts carry darker stories. One says, he told me he loved me. I did not say it back. He left that morning and left this shirt. We have not spoken since. I hope a person takes this that can love and be loved. And then, whoever took the shirt wrote back on the same tag. The shirt is cute. I have struggled a lot with love and used to objectify and treat lovers like items. I have hurt so many. But for once, I am trying to love and care truly for people. I think I can love and be loved. How, how can you pass something on um, to someone that you really care about enough to give this to but not feel judged if there was something or some memory associated with it that was negative or intense or extremely emotional or showed vulnerability. Um, and what I'm seeing in this is that people really just poured their heart out. Let's see. I got this shirt during a really tough time in my life when I had lost a lot of weight. It was too small for me now, a good thing for me. I hope a smaller, healthy person will appreciate it. It's a great shirt. I like the polka dots. And this says, I really like the style of this shirt, and it's actually my size, which is rare to find. I hope to wear it to work and feel confident in it. Thanks. So all these negative memories and hardships that come with the clothing become stories of empowerment and solidarity when they get passed down. But the thing is, whether or not someone writes it on a tag, all clothing has a story behind them. It's just not something we normally think about. That's actually a big part of my entire thesis. So I think if I were to continue this project, I would try to trace it back to the maker also. Um, and currently I am looking into supply chain systems from farmer to weaver to dyer to sewer to, to final consumer. And I'm kind of looking into how that dialogue can play out. This was kind of me trying to test, like, do people want to know where things came from? And, and, and I wonder, too, it's how do you condense the information down? Because there was a, a lot of things that I wanted to do with this project. I realized that I think people, they, they just want to know enough. Mm. And enough is, is, is fine. Well, Brooke's creating a situation where people actually want to know the story that came before them. But whether you think about it or not, you're still inheriting the full history of their clothing, right? You could choose to inherit the story of the previous owner, but don't you also inherit the story of the sower and the dyer and the weaver and the farmer? Do you inherit all these people's stories like a bundled package? You know, like, where does inheritance stop? That's a really interesting question. Because <laughs> I think with, I, I, I don't know, it, like, is there a separation between maker and artisanship and the person who actually carries out the, the use of, of what that product is. So there's a, a maker and a user in that sense. Um, I don't know if that is a part of the inheritance. That's really interesting. Like where, where does that start? Does it start with the user? Does it start with the maker? That's a great question. I don't know how to answer that question. Well, oh yeah, well that's that's such I don't know how to answer that question either. Uh, so before I left, I just had to ask Brooke this one last question. It was something that was really, really bugging me. I'm going to ask you a question that I don't expect you to be able to answer. Okay. But um, so I remember when I went to that opening day, there was this one 
ugly purple dress. Do you, do you know what dress I'm talking about? Or? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I do. <laughs> Somebody took it. Yeah, I know. Who took it? I remember everyone Everyone who passed by it. And like everyone, even like the uh, like the person who left the note said how ugly the dress was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who ended up taking that? I have no idea. Wow. But Brooke actually ended up finding the tag after our interview. Whoever took the dress wrote back in big letters, all in caps. It says, I will make art out of it. Yeah, I like that. One man's trash and all that, right? That piece was produced by Luke Soon Chong, a junior here at Stanford, with help from Jake Warga and Hadley Reed. As we just heard, there are hidden stories in everything we inherit. Sometimes it's just a matter of seeking them out. In our next piece... One mother endeavors to document generations of stories. Her daughter, Claudia, reflects on what it means to hear those voices from the past. Where did the name Cigarroa come from? From your grandma. From you. It wasn't grandpa's name? That's my mom interviewing my great-grandmother, her grandmother, 20 years ago. She calls her Abuelita. Here's my mom. It was a very natural process for her. She had a twinkle in her eye. You could tell she was just reliving everything. Over the next two days, my mom interviewed Abuelita. My mom didn't realize then how important her timing was. She was coughing, actually, when I went back and listened to the interviews. She had been coughing, and sometimes that... The cough is uh, related to, like, congestive heart failure. But, you know, when this was happening, I didn't, that didn't have any bearing. Abuelita died two weeks later. Once I was pregnant with Claudia. That's me. That's when I started thinking, you know, it would be really good for uh, me to, to actually, you know, put this on paper and do more. After transcribing Abuelita's interview, my mom decided to interview her own mom, my grandmother, and then her dad and then a whole bunch of other family members. My grandmother helped my mom gather photographs, old letters, newspaper articles, and family records. You know, I just was more into the content, uh, but my husband, he said, no, we need to have it in a book. It should be like a hardcover. And I wanted to do it before Claudia turned one. Again, that's me. There was a chaos of printing and binding, sorting and counting. And by the end, my parents had 13 copies of this book. It got a little, a little messy. It's a large, flat book. The cover is dark gold, and in the center is a collage of old family photos. It's titled, Recuerdos la Familia, Memories of the Family. This year, I decided to read through the full book for the first time. Some of the stories sound almost mythical. In one, Abuelita's stepbrother, whose name was Leonidas Gonzalez, stands up for a young girl who is accused of stealing in his town. People listen to him, and the young girl is set free. But then, years later, revolutionary groups take over the town, and Leonidas is imprisoned. The girl that he saved finds out that he's about to be executed. Turns out now she's one of the revolutionaries, and she's able to negotiate a deal that allows Leonidas to trade his family's silver mines for his freedom. The book has plenty of fantastic stories about luck and daring, but the small moments also stood out. She was telling me about her father, who died when she was four years old, and they had like a wash basin, and that, for whatever reason, was in the middle of the room. And he would always let her hang out there while he was shaving. 
Um, so she remembers him just sort of like washing his face and she could see the little droplets of water, you know, going up and then falling on her. You could imagine like the little droplets of water with little prisms of rainbows. I can imagine it too. The book for me is a window into the intimate family moments that I'd never see otherwise. Now that I'm at college, away from home and family for the first real amount of time, I feel comforted knowing that I can find my family in these pages. I meet new people with each story that I read. And when I listen to the tapes, I'm transported back to 20 years ago, to a home in Laredo, Texas, where I hear my great-grandmother for the first time. Was that when he decided to go to Laredo? And then he told me, we have to leave. That story was produced by Claudia Haymack, a sophomore here at Stanford. It featured her mother, Marissa Haymack, and included music by Poddington Bear. Special thanks to Kate Nelson for translating the voice of Abuelita. So far, we've been exploring when family members or strangers pass down something positive. But what can you do with the dangerous inheritance? In our next story, a young woman comes to terms with a potentially lethal condition that runs in her family. Down the hall, my brother is dying. Not dying, my mother chides me. A controlled dying then, a momentary dying. She stops trying to argue with me. She knows that I need to fear the worst in order to accept anything less. So, during the seventh hour of my brother's surgery, I will say that he is dying. They moved us to this waiting room, even though there is one within the surgery ward. They are the unreachable, vague higher-ups of this hospital. Doctors, administrators, nurses, They look at home here in their orthopedic shoes while the rest of us came in whatever clothes we got the call in. This new waiting room is 57 steps farther away from the surgery ward, and you have to call to get in, which is why we were moved here. We kept asking too many questions. Is he okay? Is he going to be okay? Is the surgery going okay? Maybe they were just tired of the same sentence rearranged. We want to know, is he going to be... When Jacob and I were born, we were born together. It was a premature birth, my mom's water breaking more than a month early. It turned out to be both good and bad because although no one knew it yet, Jacob's umbilical cord was wrapped around his neck. I like to imagine that I was gently pushing him out to get help from my separate amniotic sac. I was nudging him down to get someone's attention. Hey, look at us. He needs you. I weighed four pounds and Jacob three. Both our weights combined, we made one normal, healthy infant. People used to joke that I was stealing his food, that I was the bully, at least while we were in utero. For those brief eight months before we were even born, while we formed the strangest yin and yang with only each other in the dark, it would seem that I was in charge. As we would find out very quickly, this could not be further from the truth. He was the true leader. First born, first to run up to strangers, first to run headfirst at obstacles just to see what would happen. He would be the first to learn to swim and the first to save me from drowning.
I avoided learning anything about Jacob's surgery. I didn't want to know what they did, what tools they used, or how long it took. Open heart surgery, as it turns out, is particularly grueling. There's the radial saw, yes, but I didn't know that there is a ventilator tube pushed down the patient's throat so that their breathing can be artificially controlled. I didn't know that all the body's blood gets redirected through a machine so that the heart can be worked on without the blood passing through it. When Jacob saved me from drowning, we were at our cousin's pool. Our cousins were a rambunctious group of kids not unlike Jacob. I bonded more with Skylar, a girl a few years younger than us who had Down syndrome. She was an excellent swimmer, but I was not. She liked to ride on my back as I scooted around in the shallow end. Just before we had to get out of the pool, I ventured into the deep end. Although the darker, hazier pool bottom made me nervous, I was excited to be among the other kids. And then Skylar's arms were around me, attempting to play our game, but not realizing she was twice my size and that I couldn't touch the bottom. My head sank beneath the water while hers stayed afloat. I was a human buoy, but sinking fast. I thrashed, but she had her legs around my hips. I could hear her laughing above me. I surfaced once and saw Jacob staring at us from the pool edge. He was horrified. I surfaced again and saw him dive. I watched through the chlorinated water as he threw Skylar off of me and pulled me to the side. I pick up the phone outside the double doors and dial the nurse's number. Hi, yes, it's me again. Yes, I understand. But do you know if he's going to be... Oh, okay. They won't buzz me in. I wish emotions were like that, too. Hello, fear would like to be let in. No, not right now. Not today, thank you. Down the hall, doctors are cutting into my brother's chest with a radial saw, pulling apart each side of what used to be a whole sternum, like cracking open a book. Down the hall, they are taking out his heart. Don't worry, not all the way out, my mother laughs nervously. She's single-handedly keeping Kleenex in business today. Jacob's aorta is the problem. In fact, it's both of our problems. At some point, back when we were still in the womb, our DNA turned against us. Our hearts were building themselves incorrectly, with aortas too big and too weak for our bodies. This is how I explain it to people. My heart is too big for my body. It's much more complicated than this, but they seem to like the hidden tenderness in that statement. The small, conciliatory sound of an oversimplified diagnosis comforts them. Ah, they respond. It sounds lovely in a way that my heart is simply a little too large. I don't tell them about the side effects of my condition, thin skin that breaks and bruises like tissue paper, doctor's visits since I was born, pokes and prods and research and blood, so much blood. A mean death rate of 26.1 years if there's no major intervention. I don't tell them about the time in junior high I was hit in the chest with a volleyball. After it rebounded off my chest, I believed that I would be dead by the end of the day, so I wrote a note explaining what had happened to my parents and tucked it into the bra that I didn't need for the paramedics to find. I especially don't tell people that ask about my condition that in two months, only a week after I graduate from Stanford, I will have the same radial saw bearing down into my own chest as a preventative measure against a heart attack at the ripe age of 22. Our mom has had the same surgery done before as well, back when it was still in the experimental phases. She has always felt a little guilty about passing on this syndrome to each of her children. She also passed on some unfortunate psychiatric issues, but we tend not to talk about these. We're a family of fighters, not of feelers. I don't seek out help for the depression until my senior year in college, a few months before Jacob's surgery. A resident sat in front of me, pen at the ready. 
We were so close in age that if we'd met anywhere else, I would want to be friends with her. She had thick, curly hair that I was immediately jealous of. What can I help you with? She asked. Where was I supposed to start? I told her about the panic attacks I'd begun having. How many a week? One a day minimum, I said. What sets them off? Anything and everything. How do you cope? I thought this was a trick question. I don't, I said. I had talked to Jacob about this briefly. I had known since I was a child that we were fragile. We didn't have that shield of immortality that every other child seemed to have as they ran and fought and feared nothing. We had always feared something. That has to take a toll on a person, doesn't it? But Jacob shook his head. It's not that, he said. To anyone else, he appeared calm, content even, but his chin trembled the tiniest bit. No one is supposed to live with this disease. If this were still the survival of the fittest, we would have died off years ago. I think about the C-section that saved our lives and the heart monitors that we wore when we were babies that kept our parents up at night with their sporadic beeping. I nod and squeeze Jacob's shoulder, the highest part of him I can reach. Our brain knows it's not supposed to be alive, he said. A nurse comes out of the double doors dressed in operation scrubs. I look her over for a spot of blood, some telltale sign she might have missed something during cleanup, anything to hint that something's gone wrong, but I don't see any. My mother and I jump up in unison. It's one of the only times we've ever been in sync. Is he? I start to ask. He's fine, the nurse interrupts. He's in the ICU now. You can see him in half an hour, but you probably won't know you're there. This is where she's wrong. He's always known where I am. We take care of each other. When we were four years old in preschool, a woman from the state came to Head Start to do an informal assessment of Jacob and me, something to give back to the state and put in a report on single-parent households. He was on the monkey bars and didn't have time for her. How old are you, Jacob? She asked. I'm four. She wrote this down. I like Power Rangers, but I don't like the white one because one time he goes bad, but he's not all the way bad, he's just bad for one episode. The woman liked this monologue. She nodded and wrote some more. Then she turned to me. I was playing in the sand near Jacob. What about you? What's your name? Jacob jumped down from the monkey bars. That's Sierra. He pronounced it Sierra. The woman smiled politely. Sierra, how old are you? She's four too, Jacob yelled happily. The woman frowned. Sierra, she got in my face. How are you doing? I didn't like this woman. I looked up at Jacob. He grinned down at her. She's fine, he chimed in a sing-song voice. I went back to playing. Years later, I find copies of the reports in my dad's file cabinet. Male twin is expressive and intelligent, active. Female twin quiet, needs to learn to speak on her own. When I finally get to go into his room in the ICU, Jacob looks like he's been pumped full of water. His whole body, which has always been skin and bones, looks plump and not in a healthy way. His eyes are closed and a thick tube snakes down his throat. A paper hung up with tape on the wall shows one of the doctor's scribbles. I can make out a heart, a poorly drawn aorta, and a slice down the middle. A nine hour long surgery distilled into several lines. The gravity of it all crashes down on me. My better half, the strongest person I know, is motionless in front of me. I begin to cry silently and can't stop. 
I feel his hand curl around mine, and I look to see that his eyes are still closed, but he's awake enough to begin struggling against the foreign object shoved down his airway. His thumb draws weak circles around the back of my hand. Are you? I falter, but he nods anyway, understanding my question. We'll all be okay. That was Sierra Friedman reading an abridged version of her nonfiction essay, We Are All Okay, featuring Jackson Roach on the mandolin. The full version of her piece aired on our podcast Off the Page, which you can find at storytelling.stanford.edu. And just as a follow-up, as she mentioned in the piece, Sierra did end up having to have the same heart surgery as her brother, but both surgeries were successful. Sierra is stuck with the genes she was born with. But what if doctors could one day take out dangerous genes and replace them? In our next story, we'll meet a scientist who's trying to do just that. You know, you can have strokes. Patients get um, what we call bony crises, where they get extreme pain in sort of their long bones of their body. feels like having your hand slammed in a car door, except instead of it lasting only for a few seconds, it lasts for weeks at a time. And in the end, it sort of breaks down all the organs. These are symptoms of sickle cell disease. I'm Matthew Porteous. I'm a, a doctor and a scientist at Stanford University in the Department of Pediatrics, and I also see patients at Lucille Packard Children's Hospital. Portis's lab researches new ways to cure sickle cell disease, which is caused by mutation in the genes coding for red blood cells. People with sickle cell disease in the U.S. only live until their mid-40s, but this disease is present. There's about 100,000 people in the U.S. with this disease, but there are millions of people in Africa with this disease. And in Africa, where they don't have all the uh, supportive care for sickle cell disease, people often die in their early childhood. Right now, one of the main ways sickle cell disease is treated is by doing a bone marrow transplant, which is injecting a healthy person's stem cells into a patient. But this treatment has challenges. A patient about two years ago came in to get a bone marrow transplant to cure sickle cell disease but ended up dying from complications of the bone marrow transplant because they're so hard when you're taking one person's immune system and trying to put it into another person, there can be lots of complications. And so he ended up um, uh, passing away because of complications from the bone marrow transplant. So that really, those, those direct personal experiences really drive you when you come back to the lab and say, yes, we have to figure out how to do something better. But what can be done when the body rejects a stranger's healthy cells? So our idea is to take the patient's own stem cells, bring them into the laboratory, use the CRISPR technology to fix that mutation, and then use the patient's own fixed stem cells and give them back. So you mentioned CRISPR. Can you describe that for me? What is that? CRISPR is a tool, and the process is, is that you design a specific protein that breaks the DNA right where we want to fix it. And what happens is the cell, when it sees the break, repairs the break and in the process can fix your mutation. We can, in a laboratory, take stem cell, blood stem cells from a patient with sickle cell disease, introduce our CRISPR nuclease 
introduce a piece of DNA that will fix the sickle cell mutation. This has never been done in humans before, although things like it have been done. So we are hopeful that we'll be able to move to clinical trials in, sometime in 2018. So, in essence, CRISPR technology can go in and edit a bad gene, like the one causing sickle cell disease, and fix it. We're talking about changing the genetic blueprint of one patient. But what does that mean for the way our genes are passed on? Every individual is always born with a unique DNA sequence. So what the concern isn't so much that we're generating variants, it's a question of should humans do it or should we just allow nature to run its course? So the use of genome editing to treat somatic stem cells to cure diseases, the, the consensus really is, if not 100%, close to 100%, that that is, as I said, not just something that we could do, but it's something we should do. But that sometimes gets mixed up in genome editing, capital letters and bright lights, where people are talking about altering the DNA so that we create, a, you know, super soldiers or some sort of super race. And that raises, you know, a lot of science fiction, you know, concerns. And so while the CRISPR technology um, now allows us to think that that might be possible, there's still a lot of work to be done. But that's why people are having the discussion is, is that before we potentially go down that road, let's say, let's evaluate, let's say we have this new tool, how should we use it? So we've got this tool that can insert a healthy gene and cure a deadly disease, but there are barriers. The process I'm describing to you is going to be expensive um, and perhaps costing on the order of several hundred thousand dollars or more to do. Now, given the severity of this disease, I think that that's justified, um, but it's obviously still expensive. So when you think about the ethics of justice and equity, should one have access to this exciting, potentially exciting uh, curative therapy just because one happened to be born in the Bay Area or United States, but if one was born in Africa, you wouldn't have access. So I guess the challenge we face isn't just creating the science we need to change our genes. It's how to address the inequality of the world we're born into. Because our class and family and society aren't just elements of our cultural inheritance. They determine our access to healthcare. And in the future, our access to the tools we'll need to rewrite our genetic inheritance. That story was narrated and produced by Claudia Haymack, with help from Anina Hanlon and music from Poddington Bear. Special thanks also to Matthew Porteous for his interview. The patients Dr. Porteous hopes to help have received a very clear inheritance, a malignant gene that can be kept or erased away. But our next storyteller didn't know what he was receiving until it had already shaped his identity. Stanford alumnus Devin Kajus, who's currently a tight end for the Green Bay Packers, told the following story at Story Night in 2015. I was 13 years old, just me and my dad, down at Grandma's house in Florida, 
It's one in the morning. Probably doing things you shouldn't be doing with a 13-year-old, but we're doing them. <laughs> one of those things was drinking wine. Probably shouldn't be drinking wine, but you are. My dad, now he's a Marine, military background, strong big guy, 6'4", 250, man made of steel. Probably the scariest thing I've ever seen in my life. I never have moments with my dad. Very few and far between will I get to be with him. He always is, you know, doing work. I'd see him every other weekend. But this was a big moment for me. It was like, I'm with my dad. Yeah. Now, believing in the high and tight, he looks at my hair and he notices it's a mop. Just like this one. He says, time for a haircut. Yes, sir. <laughs> now, we go to the bathroom. Mind you, it's one in the morning, drinking wine. He's cutting my hair. <laughs> now he's telling me life stories. He's telling me, you know, what I should be when I grow up, what I should look forward to, things and whatnot, you know, parent talk. And all of a sudden, he says to me, Dev, always protect your family. Never leave them. They're your blood. I was like, Yes, Dad. I didn't understand. I didn't understand why he, where he was going with this. Then he says to me, you know I have how I have health problems, right? I was like, yeah. My dad's had two strokes, one stroke, two heart attacks, a pacemaker, and a trach. So I'm sitting here, heart's racing, and I'm looking at him, and he says, well, I have news for you. I said, what, Dad? And he says, I have five years left. Now, I don't know what to do when you're 13 years old and you, you think your dad's gonna die in five years and I count and it's my freshman year in college. So I wake up every day and I'm wondering, is this it? Is this gonna be my dad? Is this, am I gonna get the call? And it gets to my freshman year. He's helping me pack my bags and it's college and he's super excited for me and I'm just sitting on my bed like, is this it? And I remember hugging him goodbye and I couldn't really let him go because, you know, I'm still wondering, you know, I'm only going to see him three times a year. I don't ever know when I'm going to get the call. I play football for my dad. I don't play it for me. I don't play it for anybody else. It's the one thing I know that makes him proud no matter what. I know that he could be feeling the worst mood ever. If I say, Dad, hey, I got a great practice today. Cheers right up. Now, I was told I couldn't be a wide receiver. I wasn't going to play D1. I couldn't be fast. I don't even know what I was doing playing on the D1 level. You know... And now it's my senior year, and my dad's still alive. The doctors told him he couldn't fly to come see my games, take these medications, don't leave your bed, basically stay bedridden, don't exercise. Well, he's done everything against that. <laughs> you know what, everyone struggles every once in a while, right? 
well, through these struggles where I'm saying, Dad, I want to quit. I don't want to do this anymore. I don't feel it today. You go, Dev, me too. I know exactly what he meant. He tells me, I don't go to sleep because I'm afraid I won't wake up the next morning. But you know what, Dev? We're Kajusts. We're fighters. We don't quit. That was a recording of Devin Kajus performing at Story Night in spring of 2015. You can find a video of Devin telling the story at our website, storytelling.stanford.edu. In our final story, three undergraduate students transform a profound loss into an inheritance. We used to build, uh, in the woods, we used to build tree forts. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. We would, we would go in and we would clear out a place with a bulldozer. You know, he had a, he had a caterpillar bulldozer. And he thought it was just the, you know, the best Sunday a man could imagine. Well, maybe that was out sitting around fishing on the Chesapeake Bay. It was his best Sunday, man. But, you know, the second best Sunday you can imagine was was cruising around with a beer in your left hand, driving the caterpillar with your right hand, with your six-year-old kid on your on your knee and your your nine-year-old in, in your lap, and um. So that's how that's how the three of us would roll around. My brother and my father and I would roll around in the woods, just clearing through huge trees, which I always found incredible that he could do. You know, he had so much power. I was out there trying to snap bare twigs with my hands, and my father was, you know, reconstructing the landscape in front of me. It was a really fascinating image when you're a kid. But he um he would go in, he would clear something, and then he would um. He put up, he found some old telephone poles that he could set up for this tree fort. And um, I remember the way that the way that he tried to incorporate his sons in the making of that tree fort was really, was really fun. I remember one day um, where I stayed with him for longer. And I stayed with him for dinner. I remember that was one of the nights that they brought him the jello, and he just kind of joked around because um, he always liked good food, and he <laughs> he was kind of very disappointed with the hospital's food. We'd been playing around with the stuffed animal, the stuffed cat. It was yellow, another one. Um, and I remember me, like, putting the cat away and, like, taking out the um, paper to play Battleship. And I set it up while he ate. Uh, and then, like, I split it up into squares. That was the part that I hated the most, um, having to draw all the lines. And it's kind of, it's one of the things that I, like, I could do now, like, very easily because I know exactly, like, muscle memory from how to set up, um, how to set up the board. And we each got two squares. Then we would, <laughs> then we play, and then for water, you draw a, a little circle, like a little dot. And for when you hit a ship, you draw an X. Um, and he beat me most of the time because I think he had, I mean, as adults do, they have like a method, you know, how to play strategically. My dad and I were, it was just, we happened to both be home on a Friday night, which was odd because usually I was gone or he was in the hospital. And um, at that time he was macrobiotic because we were trying all these health food things. And so I don't know if you ever had Ezekiel bread. <laughs> it's 
pretty nasty. It's like this sprouted grain bread. And it was like the only food we had in the house. So we had like Ezekiel bread with like sunflower seed butter. Very unsatisfying dinner. And um, I remember I, I loved it when he would just whip out his iPod because he had the best music taste, like so much music. And so he just whipped it out and he's like, all right, Emma, like, I'm going to educate you on music from the 80s. And like, I hate music from the 80s. Like most of it, I'm just like not a fan of. And neither was he. But, but we were just jamming to like all these songs that like we didn't even like um, and like waltzing through our kitchen. And he had these like, he had really dorky glasses. So they're just like his glasses perched on, on the, the bridge of his nose. And uh, he was wearing a green robe, the green fuzzy robe he always wore, definitely naked underneath. He's wearing his like newsboy cap and, uh, <laughs> and he was laughing. I remember that was, I, I was really happy to see him uh, emoting uh, in, in some capacity. Um, but, you know, with those moments, there's always the, the kind of recognition that, that they're going to fade. Um, but I don't know. I think that's what happiness is, is like when you can kind of find that edge of really experiencing a moment and, and looking beyond to see that, that this moment, too, will pass. Um, I don't know. I think that stuff's pretty bittersweet. And... Um, those were the important things to remember. I remember seeing a woman who drove into his mechanic shop and told me that she had come from all the way down in North Carolina. I said, why have you come that far? You know, it's eight. Um, and she said, well, you know, I ever since I had my last car, I've known that your father is the best mechanic within a few hundred miles of where I live. So I always trust him to work on my car, no matter what. He set himself up in an old farmhouse that was about 250 years old um, in, a t in a town called Chuckatuck, Virginia. And I remember working with him in the potato barn, the old potato barn we had. It's kind of where they used to dry potatoes. Um, it's this big big barn that's kind of being taken over by rose bushes coming up the sides and ivy and fig trees out in the front. Um, but I remember watching him inside of there. Um, and he he just was so smooth about everything that he did. Um, again, it just... It's not like me right now. You know, I'm I'm always choppy and I'm not exactly sure. My hand just kind of shakes and I kind of hesitate and when I apply force to anything it's the wrong force at the wrong at the wrong time but um it always seemed to me and maybe this was me being a kid but everything seemed to be applied at the at the right time I remember something very distinctly something where I started feeling like the unfairness of it all or getting annoyed at this disease um I, at the time, I really liked Scooby-Doo because I liked uh, mysteries. And I remember asking him to watch Scooby-Doo with me one afternoon. And he fell asleep while we were watching TV because he was just exhausted all the time. Um, and I remember like being mad at him for it afterwards. And I think he might have felt guilty. Um, and I mean, looking back, like I know he knew that I was a kid. And I know that I was annoyed more at the fact that like my dad couldn't do these things than at him. But it's one of those... It's one of those memories that, like, 
it's still it still kind of stings. I like I remember it doesn't sting now, but I remember the sting of like turning and like seeing my dad asleep at 3 p.m. Um, while watching TV. There's this one picture that my mom took of that day, my 12th birthday. My dad and I were hugging. <laughs> if you go back and see that picture, uh, he's crying. And um, I didn't know at that time that, that he was crying, but uh, I have a picture of that, which I don't know if, if that's really a cool thing or not. On the Monday before he died, uh, I was wearing this dress that was like bright yellow with cherry patterns. He had been in the hospital for about two months at that point. Um, and so I, I, we had spent a lot of time there. And uh, I remember walking into his room and um, I was wearing two different colored shoes, a yellow one and a blue one. And I was wearing a red shirt um, and, and black pants. I don't know why I remember that outfit. And I was wearing that, and I remember going in, um, seeing him in the bed. He was just, he was unconscious. And um, one of those things where you don't really, it's the stress coming out. You don't really know what's happening. But I remember crying and saying, um, apologizing for not having done the workbooks for that, like the workbook exercises for that week. Um, and my mother tell, telling me, or my, my mother or my grandmother telling me that he understood that it was fine. We sat on the bed, and um, he just told me that, that he was tired, tired of, of fighting. Um, it had been about eight months at that point. Um, I remember he just, like, held my shoe and, like, put his head on my stomach. And he told me, out of great pain comes great art. He died very quickly, very suddenly, in an accident. And you can't, you can't live your life trying to deal with how a loved one has passed. And I think that I spent the first year after his death kind of frustrated with, with how he had passed. But what I started to realize was that the question, or the, the realization really, that's more important is that he has passed. You can be angry about death for a very long time, but it doesn't. It's not really worth it. Um, I think death just makes you look at life in the face. And and how do you recover who he was? How do you recover yourself? Grappling with the fact that it's very, very unfair that I won't have, like, I don't have that half, like half of who I am, um, or half of where I came from, rather, is not there to kind of like inform me on who I am or who I'm like what I'm supposed to do but he was just saying that um that not having him around would would shape me as a person and make me who I am and that um that it would be okay so it's kind of like there's two lamplights and one of them is just constantly out but there's there's a life to be lived and the best way to honor the dead is by living so I think that the hardest thing about death is the silence afterwards, uh, the time when everyone else has to get back on with their lives and 
you have to get on with your life. My dad had kept journals while he was sick. Um, so I, I read them during, um, like, over the course of, I don't know, a couple of weeks. Um, and I remember being, I mean, being very angry because a lot of the entries are very wise entries at the time of just kind of him um, taking the normal route that he did to, like, take me to school and stopping at um, this, like, really busy intersection that's by our house and looking around and just kind of thinking everything around me, all of this, will still be here when I'm not. There's just, like, those little stings of... It's, I mean, it's beautiful and thank God it does, but the world goes on even when that person is not there. Yeah, so after after my father died, um, I remember my mom came home, and I don't give her enough credit for being a really strong individual, but I remember the way that she just kneeled down in front of me and looked in my eyes and said, Honey... Your father's dead now. That's okay, I'm here. How do you how do you say that? How did she say that to herself? How did she say that to anyone? What was that what was that drive back to the house like when she said, I'm going to have to look my son in the eyes and tell him his father's dead? And he's never coming back. And he will never have a father again. And he's nine years old. But he would never have wanted me to harp on that. I think that the thing that he would have wanted the least would be for for his death and, and the, the event of to live with us. In my grandparents' house, there's these parrots that fly over the like the neighborhood. Dime crees, 27 de marzo del 2002, Garden Hills. The last entry is of him describing my brother, Mario, as the parrots fly overhead. My brother, like, yelling for my mom, saying, like, Mom, look, the parrots, the parrots. Mami, pasaron las cotorras. This poem by uh, Henry Scott Holland. My mom put it up on like our little counter and it stayed there for the the six years that we were in my house after he died. And so I kind of grew up internalizing this poem when I would go down and like eat ice cream late at night, which was always. Um, so I've <laughs> this poem kind of defines death for me and um, it really it was a comfort throughout the years. Death is nothing at all. I've only slipped away to the next room. I am I and you are you. Whatever we were to each other, that we are still. With my father, who art in heaven, hallowed be his name. He's half of me and he's half of my brothers, so he's living just the same. And now I'm living on the west coast of Bomboy, surrounded by fortune and fame. I will never forget the man who gave me my last name. Call me by my old familiar name. Speak to me in the easy way you always used. Put no difference into your tone. Wear no forced air of solemnity or sorrow. Laugh as we always laughed at the little jokes we enjoyed together. Play, smile, think of me. Pray for me. Let my name be ever the household word that it always was. 
let it be spoken without effect, without the ghost of a shadow on it. Life means all that it ever meant. It is the same as it ever was. There is absolute unbroken continuity. Why should I be out of mind because I'm out of sight? I'm waiting for you, for an interval, somewhere very near, just around the corner. All is well. That story was produced by Ben Solitianu, Emma Rothenberg, Amalia Saladringas, and McGregor Joyner. McGregor also played the guitar. Today's program was produced by me, Rosie Labuma, Claudia Haymack, Melina Walling, Anina Hanlon, Ethan Chua, Natasha Ruck, Jake Warga, and Jonah Willingans. Special thanks to Hadley Reed, Christy Hartman, Jackson Roach, Deborah Lapuma, and Deanna Wicks. Other music you heard during the show was by Poddington Bear. For their generous financial support, we'd like to thank the Vice Provost for Undergraduate Education, Stanford Continuing Studies, the Program in Oral Communication, and Bruce Braden. Remember, you can find this and every episode of State of the Human on iTunes. You can also download them and find out more about the storytelling projects, live events, grants, and workshops at our website, storytelling.stanford.edu. For State of the Human and the Stanford Storytelling Project, I'm Rosie LaPuma. So maybe start singing the songs in church. Which one? Which one I'm talking about? Oh, like you are inheritance. You are, are inheritance, oh Lord, Lord, my God. My God. Yeah, that one. <laughs> yeah. You made me sing it. <laughs> <laughs>